0: Hey everybody, Zach here. Before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to make you all aware of a new higher education CRM that I've recently come to know that I think many of you will be very, very interested in. Um, and the best way to actually describe what the, really the power of this CRM is to use an experience disruption analogy. So if you listened to one or more of our podcasts, you've probably heard me at some point talk about experience disruption. And one of the best ways Ways to explain what experience disruption is is to think about Uber's relationship with the traditional taxi industry. Right? So from a product standpoint, Uber and your traditional classic yellow taxi cab aren't objectively different, right? They're both gonna get you from point A to point B. But the difference with Uber is all in the experience. You can pop up your phone while you're at the bar, finishing up your drink, and request a car. The car will pull up, and it'll take you exactly where you need to go. It's, it's an experience with very, very little friction, and that's why Uber wins. So similarly, Verity CRM is a CRM that acts more like an Uber and less like a traditional higher education CRM, which acts a little bit more like a taxi. So Verity delivers the industry's easiest way to communicate with perspective existing, and former students. They have a powerful built-in contact center that facilitates effective communication via multiple contact paths, which really allows university departments to focus on high-value conversations that lead to higher retention, greater conversions, and more effective job placement. The CRM is not just really, really powerful. The interface is beautiful, and it's it's really fun to kind of play around with and build content in. It's super, super, super easy to do. So it's got like the powerful robustness of like a slate, but the easy to use functionality of like a HubSpot. And it's a higher education CRM that's built exclusively for enrollment managers and um, enrollment marketing teams. So if you want to learn more about Verity and you want to understand more about how this product is disrupting the higher education CRM experience space, head on over to VerityIQ.com. That's VerityIQ.com. Forward slash enrolify to learn more. Hello and welcome to the Enrollify podcast. My name is Zach Boozy Cruz, and I am your host for today's episode. And today I have the great honor of speaking with Rob Bulow, who is the Senior Vice President of Higher Education and Impact at EverFi. Welcome to the show, Rob. Hey, glad to be here, Zach. So we're going to have a really fun conversation. Um, we're going to learn a lot. I think for, for folks tuning in today, um, you know, you might want to bring a notebook if, you, if you're not driving and just so you can jot down some notes. Uh, I have had a couple conversations with Rob and he's just full of great wisdom, lots of, lots of gold nuggets and, and fantastic takeaways that you're not going to want to miss. Um, and I'm going to let Rob introduce himself a little bit more formally momentarily. But first, Rob, one of the things I like to do on the show is introduce the conversation with a, a question that is related to the topic of, of, of the episode, but, um, is also a little bit, uh, is different. And so I like this question to be different, uh, every episode. So the question that I've crafted for you is when you were growing up, uh, I'm curious about how college was talked about at home. You know, if it was talked about at home at all, what, what did you think, if you can remember, like, what was the, what was the value proposition of going to school?
1: Uh, You know, Zach, one of my earliest memories growing up was actually of my dad and his commencement ceremony when he finished his degree at UNC Charlotte. I remember sitting in the arena as a little kid and seeing him down there on the floor waving at us after he had walked across the stage and got his diploma. Uh, Interestingly, a couple of years later, I I have this really vivid memory. My dad was taking some uh, grad classes remotely from Bucknell, and he was literally getting mailed video cassettes. Of these (laughs) recordings. Yeah, we've we've come a long way. Uh, But other than that, college wasn't really talked about much, but it also didn't really feel like a choice either. I just assumed that that's What comes after high school, and that's what I was gonna do. And so I enrolled as an undergrad at Penn State. I was a Bachelor of Arts in psychology and probably spent the first two years of my program wandering without a path. Hmm. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I started to get into industrial organizational psychology really just because I thought it would make more money, but I wasn't really passionate about anything until I took an intro to women's studies class. Hmm. And that class it changed everything for me it was this quintessential coming of age moment where you know i started to learn more about myself and my identity and my privilege and issues of oppression that i wasn't aware of i got more engaged in my coursework i got more involved in campus groups that professor became a mentor for me and helped me get my first job i minored in women's studies after that and so i think about my experience and that I might not have had that coming of age moment if my circumstance was different. I came from a stable home where academics were important. I went to a good high school. I had parents who helped me with financial aid. I had a ton of electives and developed a mentor. And a lot of today's future college students don't look like me or share those experiences Mm. and their profiles changing every day. So we've certainly got our work cut out for us to keep
0: up quick follow-up to that do you remember going through the college search process do you remember how you evaluated which schools you were going to apply to like did you were you pretty set on on Penn State was it sort of a a no-brainer if you got in it was that's where you that's where you wanted to be I'm curious as you sort of uh you know found your way through that process What sorts of things were you using to evaluate schools and and ultimately, how did you decide which schools to, to apply to?
1: You know, I I wish I had something deeply insightful to say about my search process, Zach, (laughs) but it was, uh, I I applied to Penn State, I grew up in Pennsylvania, knew a bunch of people that were going to Penn State, and had a girlfriend at the time that was going to Indiana University of Pennsylvania, so I applied there too. And those were the two programs that I applied to. So, um, you know, for me, Penn State just, you know, it was a a bigger school, had more options for me, and and those were really my decision-making points.
0: Okay, fantastic. That, that's fair. As a as a brand marketer, I was hoping it was gonna be a little bit more nuanced and exciting and you know, oh <laughs> sorry yeah, sorry to so let the, you down. the ads that I saw for this uh <laughs> this school really compelled me and uh the comflows flows from this other school were incredibly convincing and anyways, um <laughs> uh I digress. <laughs> um, Alas <laughs> Um, no, but but that's helpful. So okay. A little bit more about you. Uh, one of the questions I also like to ask folks is: You're sitting on a plane, okay? Let's. This is post-COVID when when flying mm, is course. is allowed and, and encouraged. Um, And the person next to you asks what you do. They're sort of one of those folks that, you know, they don't want to chat the entire flight, but they're not going to get you. They're not going to let you get away with a simple answer like I'm in higher ed tech or I am a higher education consultant. Um, So how do you explain to them what you do and and what your career to date has actually looked like?
1: Ah, I love this question, Zach, and. I actually, I love what I'm doing and the work that we're doing at Everfi. But interestingly, for the first couple of years when I was at Everfi, I really struggled getting other people as excited about what I was doing as I was. So I remember there were a number of times I'd be out with my partner, now wife, and you know people would ask, like, oh, what do you do for a living? I'm like, oh, I'm, I work for an ed tech company and we're changing the lives of K-12 students and people in higher ed. And I go, like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And then they'd ask her and she'd be like, well, I work for a social media monitoring and analytics company. We're using natural language processing to look at global disease outbreaks and, you know uh, <laughs> yeah. vaccines." sentiment. They're like, Oh my God, that's so interesting. I'm like, damn it. I have got to come up with (laughs) a better way to talk. Yeah. (laughs) Right. For sure. So I remember really clearly, I was actually at a Red Sox game. And of course, you know, the the folks sitting next to us asked, you know, what we do for a living. And that day for the first time, I intentionally didn't say I work for an ed tech company. I said that I work for a social impact technology company Uh and just like the lights went on for them and they had all sorts of questions. They got super excited excited. And I got to tell them about how at EverFi, we're using online education to take on the biggest challenges in K-12 schools, in higher education and in corporations. So that starts with things like bullying or prescription drug abuse prevention or financial education to then in higher ed, it's sexual violence, it's alcohol and other drugs, diversity and inclusion and mental health. And then in the workplace, you're talking about harassment and discrimination, implicit bias, ethics, And so from the day a kid starts elementary school to the day they retire, EverFi is using technology to improve the trajectory of their lives and the Mm -hmm. communities that they live in. So my specific role at EverFi is leading our campus prevention network, which is our higher ed work, but also overseeing our impact team, which is our subject matter experts, public health professionals that are building the online course content to make sure that it's evidence-based and driving impact and, then also looking at our survey data and making sure that we're seeing the sorts of changes and results from our courses, but also empowering our customers to have better insights on the communities that they serve. And so for me, as a public health professional myself, you know, when you think about public health being about population-level prevention. And you think about the scale of EverFi, we're in 25,000 K-12 schools. We reach 5 million students, staff, and faculty every year. We work with 1,700 corporations. We're truly, every day, changing the world for better.
0: Wow. That was very well said. And um, most of the folks that are listening to today's episode work in enrollment management or in higher education, marketing and communications. And I'm, I'm curious, could you just briefly walk through how to, who does EverFi work with within the context of a college or university?
1: For sure. So certainly a lot of our focus is in student affairs divisions where you've got your practitioner level leaders of these various issues, whether it's your alcohol and substance misuse coordinator, it could be your title IX coordinator on campus, could be folks in the counseling center, but also as you sort of think about the institutional infrastructure of higher ed, thinking about who are the folks that actually sit atop all of these various challenges so that would be your vice president for student affairs or your provost or your chief diversity officer folks in hr who are thinking about faculty and staff training and compliance with regulatory requirements but i think increasingly you know, we need more and more hands on deck from a systems thinking perspective to drive change in higher education. So I think that, you know, chief business officers who are having a real hard time right now looking at the finances of higher education, what constitutes an investment versus an expense or enrollment officers who are thinking about, you know, life cycle management, how do we not just get students in the door, but keep them here, engage them and make them successful when they graduate. So the interesting thing about the work we're doing is it really touches everybody at all levels of the institution.
0: Now that makes uh, a lot of sense. And um, it'll be really interesting. I, I love what you said about sort of rethinking like what we think an investment versus an expense is, and I do think that, at least traditionally speaking, um, these sorts of programs um, tend to be thought of as as expenses. Um, but I think in the world that we're living in in today, it'll be really interesting to see how how that uh, shifts culturally and how our mindset, specifically within higher ed, uh, rethinks and, and sort of like reframes how we think about some of the work that you all do.
1: Oh, absolutely, and I think that's where you know data becomes particularly important to understand the connections between things that might have felt like they're at the margin of the mission and business of higher education, but are actually squarely in the center of it. And I think about issues of safety, well-being, and inclusion as directly in the middle of who we are and what we strive to do as an industry in higher
0: ed. This is a great transition um, into a question I have that really just addresses the moment that we're we're all living through. So, Mm. Higher ed, right, long before we, any of us knew what COVID-19 was, was facing financial challenges, um, you know, declining enrollment, rising costs, increased competition, and really this sort of ongoing cultural debate over what the heck the value of a degree actually is um Mm -hmm. and you know and to that today's generation of students are are more socially conscious The they're more inclined to participate in social activities um to uh to you know address some of the uh, real challenges we're facing as a nation whether that be Racial uh, inequality, whether that be gender bias, so you know we, we're dealing with a generation that make values-based consumer decisions more so than previous generations, um, and that sort of stems over. It bleeds very much over into whether and and where they decide to go to to college. So I'm hoping you can sort of unpack this for us. I know that you guys have a, a fair amount of content um, that I've I've uh, perused through um, on this on this topic. And I'm just curious, what sort of data do you all have access to that can help us all sort of make sense of what is this generation? um, What are the things that they care about? What do we need to understand as enrollment marketers about how to engage with, how to inspire, and ultimately how to enroll this next generation of students? Mm,
1: It's a great question, Zach. And you you hit the nail on the head. COVID didn't cause the challenges that we're facing as an industry. It has certainly accelerated them, um, but a lot of the writing was on the wall with you know, nearly a decade of declining enrollment and over 50% of, um, of Americans thinking that a Google internship is more valuable than yeah. <laughs> an Ivy League degree. Like, things are really changing and people are questioning, is it worth it, especially at the cost? Of higher education, but to the enrollment and marketing and communication folks listening in, I think the you know the cliff that's on the horizon from an enrollment perspective in 2025 and the changing demographics of uh, matriculating college students is really important. And you really nailed it, Zach, that you know this generation, Gen Z or iGen as it's sometimes been called, uh, is really a values focused generation. They, and you know, we have to understand what these young people care about because they're absolutely raising the bar around what they expect uh, from brands that they consume, whether it's the jeans they wear, the food that they eat, or the college or university that they go to, or not. And they're demanding accountability of leaders of those institutions and organizations. And it manifests in a lot of ways. There was a study that had come out of Harvard a couple years ago showing that You know, a major scandal uh, could be an issue of hazing or a high-profile sexual assault that resulted in major major media coverage, subsequently led to a 10% drop. In applicants to that institution. And that is equivalent to a 10 ranking drop in the wow. US News and World Report. So we're talking buku dollars yeah. when we don't meet the socially conscious expectations of our future students. <laughs> and what's interesting is like the the private industry is all over this. The business roundtable a year ago redefining the purpose of corporations around stakeholder capitalism. Um, they know this generation of young people, over 50%. of them state that knowing a brand is socially conscious influences their purchase decisions. And so that has to inform who and how we're recruiting. And it was actually, you know, interestingly, one of the things that I got really excited about at EverFi, because we're working with some of the world's biggest brands to sponsor critical skills education for K-12 schools so that the schools don't have to bear the burden of the cost of this technology. That's funded by the private sector, and it's bringing this critical education that's not talked about in the classroom, in front of young people, and it's changing the course of their lives, and it's also putting their logos right in front of that education. So I have to think about, you know, is there something there in that sponsorship model and that sort of private public partnership where higher education might think differently about how they're recruiting and who they're going after?
0: What's interesting to me, and I wonder if you could speak speak to this a little bit, and maybe I'm missing something obvious here, but um, higher education in general, at, at least this is a stereotype, maybe this isn't actually true, um, uh, tends to be a, a little bit more progressive. And there tends to be faculty in, working at institutions that are true thought leaders, that are, are practitioners. And so I, one of the, the things that I'm sort of wondering in the back of my head here is why isn't this already – Uh, more more popular why isn't there significant uptick in this sort of programming within the context of higher ed considering the fact that these tend to be more more open more more liberally minded um uh communities
1: You know, you think about it, Zach, and and I agree with you there. I think there's a ripe opportunity and we're starting to see it really be embraced more. But you're talking about historically, schools at least felt disincentivized to talk about these issues, that to talk about sexual assault on campus was to acknowledge that it was a problem that actually existed Mm -hmm. on our campus. So we're not going to, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about our our, our rock wall, our lazy river and our degree programs. Um, but now more and more as it's become just sort of widely known that sexual violence or alcohol misuse or hazing isn't an isolated problem at, you know, a couple of bad apple institutions, that it's really something that, you know, across higher education, we share as a collective challenge. I think there is, you know, you no longer distinguish yourself By avoiding the spotlight on these issues, the way that you actually differentiate is stepping into the spotlight and owning these issues and acknowledging that they happen everywhere, including at X, Y, and Z university. But what makes us different is we're committed to taking them on head on. And here's the ways that we're committed to creating a safer, more inclusive campus where all members of our community can thrive. I think that is the talking point of future leaders of the industry of higher ed
0: makes a lot of sense and uh, appreciate you kind of fleshing that out for us. Just to circle back actually quickly on talking about this generation of students that's a little bit more or significantly more uh, socially conscious and activism inclined than than historic generations, one of the things that I see, uh, again, as an enrollment marketer, a fair amount is lots of advertisements specific, specifically attra- uh, 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 intended to attract Generation Z that are uh, saying the right things. Um, they, they look compelling, um, but they've got, you know, more often than not cheap copy. And, um, it, it you know, it, if I was to be a consultant working for that institution, there are 10 reasons why I would never do the things that, that I see many institutions do, uh, from a marketing standpoint. And I guess one of the things, uh, uh, this is a long way of asking a question, which is how do schools uh, who are interested in really, tackling and addressing these challenges these these you know very preventable harms uh, and and high risk behaviors that that we're seeing sort of derail student success how do these schools ensure that they've Got a product that is uh, that is working before they kind of take that product to market before they before they uh, are shouting from the rooftops that we've figured out how to how to tackle this in a way that is actually unique or hey our brand does care about these things and here's how we're actually moving the needle on some of these social issues. I see a lot. In other words, I see a lot of talk out there, but I don't see that coupled with. Uh, lots of notable like product difference differentiation. And I'm curious if you've got any insight into whether today's prospects just need to hear the right thing or whether or not they actually need to be able to see from a quote unquote product standpoint that something different is actually happening within the context of the university walls.
1: Mm. You know, as I pick apart that question, There's a lot. I you know, apologize. I apologize. <laughs> I think about, I think about Black Lives Matter. And I think about the fact that the conversation right now is really centered around what it means to be anti-racist. And so there's this, um, there's this age old story of, you know, being on an airport walkway. And I believe this is, um, uh, the the author's name is uh, is escaping me at the time, but the book of right, why do all the black people sit together in the cafeteria? Yeah.
0: Um,
1: so anyway, you're on an airport walkway, and the airport walkway of society is moving in the direction of oppressing certain groups of individuals, call it racism or homophobia, and you know you're all we're all on that walkway, and so you can say you know, A, like, oh, I support all these harms and I'm going to actively run in that direction and acutely harm people. Or you could say, you know what, I I don't buy this and I don't support it. So you kind of turn around and face the other direction. But unless you're actively moving against the grain of the walkway at a pace that is greater than the momentum of the walkway, you're not making change. And I think that's where the notion of anti-racism really comes from. And it's being driven by a generation of people and activists who are saying that talk is cheap, that words and a statement aren't enough, that we demand actions. You can't create a more inclusive campus community by putting out a presidential statement or even by just hiring a chief diversity officer. You have to do the work and invest in inclusive excellence. And it's more than a person, it's more than a program. Prevention is a process. And I think we don't need to innovate and create the shiny new penny around what that process looks like. There's decades of great research about how to drive change on these big issues, but to actually embrace that research Gets us back to that conversation around what is an unnecessary expense and what is a worthwhile investment. Because right now we're not seeing those investments being made in ways that are truly going to activate the transformational potential of social impact and prevention work.
0: That was amazing. Uh wow. I, I feel like I have 87 follow-up questions to that, but I want to keep us, I want to keep us moving here a little bit. And I want to kind of touch on that that last thing that you said. Um, around how we think about right whether or not we're going to seriously invest as a community into some of this programming um, because we believe it's the right thing to do and I'm curious you know for, for those listening who um, are, are maybe a little bit more traditional um, with respect to thinking about institutions as as a business, thinking about um, you know the purpose of higher education being to produce people that can you know go out and, and get great jobs but also to kind of serve the, the overarching institutions Um, bottom line and we know that enrollment is a huge driver of that and colleges and universities can't exist without generating new students Um, um, and so I'm curious if you can speak to a little bit of what, what are some of like the business cases for changing the way in which we think about some of the Programming that's similar to the programming that EverFi uh, provides. In other words, why Mm -hmm. like strictly, and you guys have some great data on this, and I'm hoping you could just speak a little bit to how, when we change the way in which we think about this, when we move sort of this from, this sort of programming from the expense category to the investment category, we actually, in the end, um, can do better overall, and the health of the organization, the health of the institution, can improve. Can you speak to some of the data that you all have available that that suggests that this is a worthy pursuit? Oh, totally. We have to be thinking about it
1: from an ROI perspective, and we just recently put out a publication about this. So, you know, if we consider. All the aspects of the the student life cycle and the student experience that you know an enrollment marketer would be thinking about, so there's you know the recruitment phase, retention, academic success, student engagement, career readiness, alumni engagement, and donor relations. all of those pieces, are either directly or indirectly impacted by experiences and perceptions of safety, well-being, and inclusion. So let's just kind of pull apart a couple of those. So we've got some data showing that students who participate in prevention programs. We'll call it sort of universally that umbrella of prevention programs compared to students who haven't participated in that sort of education. They feel like they belong more at their institution. They feel more valued in the classroom. They're happier to be at their school. Like these aren't just, you know, knowledge attitudes and behavioral outcomes specific to safety. These are the priorities that everybody at all levels of higher education need to because belonging is absolutely connected to whether or not a student is going to persist at your institution, or if they have an experience that is worthy of them giving back to the institution as an alum. So participation in these programs is really powerful, but also we know that prevention and social impact work isn't just a program, it's a process. And so we've built a number of tools to comprehensively help campuses study and examine their work in these sort of multifaceted aspects of, you know, leadership, policies, strategic planning, programming, and education. And what we've learned is, you know, at the level of sort of institutional support, the funding mechanisms in place for something like substance misuse prevention, campuses are spending about as much in terms of dollars per student as a chicken McNugget happy meal around a prevention issue like that. Around $4.50 a student. But the leading institutions in the country are spending $10 to $15 per student around these issues. And that's what can really activate change. Similarly, from a staffing perspective, we've got, on average, one full-time equivalent of a prevention professional for every 10,000 students. And that is just not a recipe for successful social impact. And at the presidential level, over 50% of campuses have a president that only spoke about these issues once or not at all in the past 12 months. But leading institutions have presidents that two thirds of the time have talked about these issues three or more times a year. And so I share that because the quality of an institution's prevention strategy when you sort of give them a score in how you're performing in sexual assault prevention or substance misuse prevention is directly and linearly and statistically significantly connected to retention and graduation. So a modest three-point increase in score around sexual assault prevention strategies is associated with a 1% higher first year to second year retention rate and a 2.5% higher four-year graduation rate. So you multiply that out by four to six years of a cohort of students, like you're literally talking about hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars that you could be losing by not activating education that's going to help your students persist at your campus. And so those are absolutely metrics that Enrollment and marketing managers need to be thinking about. Um, And lastly, I would say that, you know, as we should be preparing our graduates to be successful in their lives and in their careers, that the work that student affairs often leads. Uh, around, you know, prevention education, for example, like these aren't just sort of fluffy soft skills. These are 21st century workforce readiness skills. Employers demand that students are going to come in and A, at the very least, not be a liability to their corporate culture. Because you remember back in March before COVID-19, it was still hashtag me too, two years into that movement. And so that has absolutely transformed the expectation of what sorts of skills and competencies employers have in addition to the sort of really technical aspects of a college degree.
0: Again, lots and lots to chew on there. Um, That's super, super helpful. And I think, again, while there are... uh, great reasons, myriad reasons to implement this sorts of, of, of uh, programming and to take um, the work that you all are doing very, very seriously. Um, and I think socially, we can all agree that it's, it's the smart thing to do. I love, uh, and I think it's very helpful when folks uh, like you just did can frame this within the context of how it helps sort of the organization's bottom line. And again, you know, the bottom line as as we know it has been augmented um, and we're changing, right, the way in which we, we think about Profit at all costs. We're changing the way in which we think about what a stakeholder is uh, across not just in higher education, but um, throughout business as well, as you as you alluded to earlier. And so I think it's just very helpful. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to kind of flesh that out, because uh, I feel like that's oftentimes like the missing piece for folks. It's like, yes, I buy into this being a good thing still not totally Mm. clear how this it it almost seems like one of those investments that like it's it's sort of like buying this is probably a a really rough analogy so forgive me we might have to bleep this out after but (laughs) it's almost like you know when you buy like the warranty on something and it's like you know that's probably a good thing to do it makes sense you know you never know what might happen but right when you when push comes to shove and you're already spending what whatever you're spending on the product it seems like something that would be nice but not necessary and what I love about what you just did is you helped articulate beyond sort of the 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 value of um, this from a social standpoint this from uh, uh, protecting our, our constituents which in this case are our student standpoint it's also just a very smart business decision so um I hope I'm not detracting from any, uh, you know, from any of the the good and important sort of whys beyond business. But I do think that that's oftentimes something that gets overshadowed in these sorts of in these sorts of conversations. I don't know if you you agree with me there, but that's sort of what I hear. And I'm just appreciative of you you all taking the time to to explain this in in a way that I think is is broader um, and will make more yeah. sense to more people.
1: Well, you know, so in the sort of micro and macro sense, if I can put it another way, like when we talk about doing prevention work, it's not actually about sort of wagging your finger at students and telling them that they need to stop engaging in all of these bad, risky behaviors, because A, the data shows most students aren't engaging in those behaviors, and B, that's never going to be an effective way to get someone wanting to do the things that you want them to do right so we're really all about empowering people to create the communities that they that we know that they want to live in, learn in, love in and we're giving them the tools and skills to really just activate and act in ways that are consistent with their values so you pan back to you know the administrators and staff and faculty and leaders in higher education you know Doing something because it's the box requirement that we have to fill, that's not why we come to work every day. And so it's this notion of we can do well by doing good. And I firmly believe that's the best way that we can uh, activate people as change makers and ultimately create a better college and university and ideally society.
0: So I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, What are Two to three changes then that you think higher ed needs to make immediately, which I'm let's say immediately is the next 12 to 24 months to maintain relevancy with next generation. So what if Rob ruled the world and Rob had this, you know, this ability to wave a magic wand and enact <laughs> meaningful change across this broad sector, um, what would you do? Hmm.
1: You know, so I'm really honing in on the word relevance there, and I'm thinking about a conversation I was having just a couple of weeks ago with a vice president for student affairs who had to actually end our call early to go meet with students who were organizing around how they could protest on campus but do it in a healthy way wow. during this pandemic. Like wow. that if that's not a snapshot of what this generation of students is like and how we need to be relevant for them, like you know, that that is everything. Campus climate and culture matters so much to students and students shape campus climate and culture. And so, you know, for me right now to stay relevant, we have got to find constructive ways to bring students to the table and empower them as parts of the solution versus parts of the problem to create the communities that they want to be a part of, because they're going to make their voices heard no matter what. So we've got to create opportunities to channel that in a really positive way. So I guess that's one overarching thing. And I would say generally, you know, with the rising competition in the industry and the disruption from the Amazons and the Googles of the world, we've got to be prioritizing real world skills and experiences. Because the number one reason students still go to college is to get a good job. And a good job now in the 21st century workforce requires students that are able to think creatively and critically, who can engage in dialogue across differences, who are culturally competent, who behave ethically. And so we have to really think about all facets of the college experience inside and outside the classroom and align those with the competencies that are going to prepare students for their lives after college. And enrollment marketers have to tell that story about how everything that we're doing is setting you up to be successful in your lives, in your careers, and in your communities. And the last piece that, you know, let's let's uh, pay attention to the the pandemic in the room. I think we've got to prepare for the increasingly virtual future of higher education that's not going away Mm. and so you know as we had to quickly pivot to digital learning in the spring i think we found that there was a, a lot left to be desired in terms of the quality of online education and so we're seeing standards start to proliferate raising the bar around quality of digital learning But where are those same standards around the facets of the virtual college experience outside of the academics and the classroom based learning? And at Everfi, one of the things that we're really focused on and helping to solve that challenge is starting to look at the research and codify what the standards of excellence are for online. Prevention education programming. And so we are actually launching right now what we're calling the Campus Prevention Network Seal of Prevention. And it's really focused on establishing a set of rigorous standards for what it means to do good virtual prevention education on safety, well being, and inclusion issues. But then importantly, Recognizing institutions that have risen up to that standard and publicly highlighting those institutions' commitment to creating safer. Uh, healthier, more inclusive communities where everybody is welcome and everybody is set up to thrive. Clearly, it's what students care about now, and we've got to find a better way to help measure what good work looks like in the virtual environment and shout it from the mountaintops when it's being done.
0: This is... Uh, this is super super helpful. Um, and just before I forget, we should make a note to uh, include whatever sort of uh, information you all might be able to to give me in in our show notes. So listeners, if they want to learn a little bit more about that, can have uh, easy access to that. So. Um, uh, I just wanted to make a note there before before I forget. Um, yeah,
1: sure. And I think that some of the notes um, that I had, I think, l- gave you as links in our last email, that might be a helpful starting place. But I can close the loop
0: with you. Perfect, perfect. So I'll, I'll link those for for folks as well. Um, and I, you know, I do want to just kind of touch on, kind of circle back to our conversation briefly about sort of why this conversation is important to not just people in student affairs, not just people in. Uh, uh, at the leadership level, but also enrollment managers, also people that are working in in marketing and communications. And I loved what you said in a conversation that we had, I believe it was a couple weeks ago. And you sort of argued that, you know, social justice and social impact is a critical part of the playbook for, the future of strategic enrollment and lifecycle management, and I was wondering mm. if you could flesh this out, uh, flesh this framework out for us a little bit more, and in particular, like the question that I think many of our our listeners have, and you've done a great job of touching on this loosely, but I'm hoping um, for something maybe a little bit more concrete here. If I'm an enrollment marketer and I'm listening to uh, to today's conversation, I might still be tempted to think that great, love what you're saying, makes sense. Still sort of like a student affairs issue, not something for for enrollment management or Marcom to to really worry about. But I'm curious how you think and whether this is, uh, you know, work you all have done on EverFi, whether this is just, you know, Rob's uh, observations from having worked in the space for a while. But how do you think social impact plays, for instance, into how universities should think about recruiting new students?
1: Mm. Hmm. (laughs) There... just a really timely, there was an article last week on money.com. And this article, it was titled College and the Black Lives Matter Movement. And so basically the, the premise of this article was students care about these issues of social justice. And it is incredibly difficult for them to ascertain whether or not The institutions that they're looking to enroll at also care about these issues. Ah. So, the piece was about how hard it was for these prospective students to find out what a campus is doing to demonstrate that they value diversity and have anti racist policies in place. And the inability to find that information and the ability to find it at a few select institutions was absolutely driving enrollment decisions of the students that were profiled in this piece. And it's not lost on me that this is an article on money.com. So it it just really forces us to think differently. Like this isn't just a student affairs issue. This is a higher education issue. And strategic enrollment management, I know, is increasingly focused on the student life cycle. So we've gotta think about how we're talking about the things that young people care about when we're trying to bring them to our institution, but also how we are setting them up to be successful when they're here because it's really expensive to replace a student who leaves our institution, not to mention the impact of these harms on those students directly and the people that love and care about them. So there is a vested interest that enrollment managers and MarCom folks have in safer, healthier, more inclusive communities. And I'm not saying that you know, enrollment folks need to be the change makers or the practitioners on campus, but you are absolutely the storytellers. And if you're not talking about these things in your conversations with prospective students, you're not really listening to what they're telling you that they care about and what they expect from you. So where you're telling these stories, how often you're telling these stories is really important. So I think about virtual campus tours and how are you bringing in messaging that says that safety is more than just blue lights on campus, that inclusion is more than just a statement that you might have read on our Office of the President website, that our experience and how we want to create a culture and a climate where you can thrive here is more than just rock walls and lazy rivers, because to not talk about those things is to miss the things that students and their parents, by the way, really want to hear from you. And there's a whole other benefit then as well to starting to get ahead of future crises, because we know it's it's inevitable. We're not gonna prevent all of these bad things from happening. I hope we can prevent more of them. But when a crisis happens on a campus, it has a devastating impact on our brand. And so you're not gonna be able to control the first five hits on Google when a crisis happens on campus. Yeah, but yeah. right now, you can proactively be shaping what the next 10 pages of Google hits say about your institution and your commitment to these issues. So let's not just sort of act when our backs are against the wall in the middle of a crisis because we don't do our best work there. Let's get ahead Of crises by talking proactively now about our investments and that's part of what we're doing with our seal of prevention we're providing campuses with a letter that they can send to prospective students we're partnering with organizations like parchment um, who many folks probably know here a leading digital credential company so you've got a prospective student they're going to submit their diploma through parchment to your uh, admissions office they're on Cart Parchment's profile pages. They're going to be able to see whether or not your institution has this seal of prevention. And so when they're looking and comparing you to other mid-sized liberal arts colleges in the Midwest with a great English lit program and, and uh, a D1 soccer program, like they're going to be able to see also that you stand out because you have clearly taken actions to invest in creating a safer, more inclusive environment for them.
0: It sounds to by everything that I'm hearing you say, that... One of the things that folks could do if they're looking for something really, really tangible in terms of like a takeaway from everything that you've shared with us is what does it look like to basically start by increasing the feedback loop between student affairs and enrollment management and student affairs and Marcom? And what, you know, higher ed has this this, um, tendency to be quite siloed in how we think about information and who talks to who. And um, sort of what I'm kind of hearing in between the lines of what you're saying is that there's got to be. Much more feedback between how is how are how is the university actually executing on these things, and then how can the people that are the front lines of the university, the the uh, the marketers, the enrollment managers, when people meet your director of financial aid, right? These are people that are are very much on the front lines of the university's brand. How can they be equipped and informed about hey? this is what is actually happening. Like, hey, I, I'm running from, uh, right after this, I'm going to meet with Student Affairs and we're going to be talking about, you know, how we can increase, you know, all the the efforts that they've made to help increase safety and to enable students to um, have, uh, you know, vehicles through which they can peacefully protest in a way that is socially distant and um, in a way that everyone is, is able to win, right? And I think that there is still just this disconnect. Um, and I'm hopeful that folks um, could, you know, if they, if they can't do anything else, could leave this conversation, set up a meeting mm-hmm. with people in student affairs and brainstorm together about how, what they're doing, um, what they might be able to do, what they're hearing from prospective students um, and how can those, how can these teams work more collaboratively so that, you know, uh, we can raise all boats. So I, I don't know if that's sort of like a, a fair sort of summary of, of what you're saying there, but I do think that, one of the best ways to move the needle, especially if folks don't have lots of resources uh, at their disposal, is to simply help start, you know, go out, start a conversation and help sort of reduce the silos, help break apart the silos that might exist between these departments.
1: Oh, 100%, Zach. And, you know, the institution that was profiled in that uh, money.com piece where the the student who was there actually decided to go to, that is an institution that I know directly. And their chief student affairs officer has weekly or biweekly meetings with their head of enrollment. So if you don't have those biweekly meetings in place with your vice president for student affairs, send them a calendar invite with a link to today's podcast right when you get off here and get it on the books.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay. I have uh, two final questions for you. The first one is is one that I'm really really excited about because um, I've never actually asked this question to anyone. And as I was prepping for today's interview, I thought you would be a, a great person to to test this with, um, especially just as as we're sort of in this moment where. Uh, I think it's relatively fair to say that higher education value proposition is being questioned. The future of what higher ed can and should look like is is at least up for discussion. So I think this this question is is quite timely. Um, and it's really it's really a little bit more like a game. So mm. let's say that you were seeking funding to start a brand new college or university, um, and you've got a few angel investors uh, prepared. That will throw some serious cash behind what it is that you want to do, but they want to know what your, you know two-year plan your 24-month plan for launching something like a a minimum viable product will be how do you as 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 rob given the sum total of rob's life experience uh, um how do you go about starting this new school um and again don't worry too much about about scaling at this juncture but how do you get something tangible off the ground and how does it look different than what today's colleges and universities look like
1: well, Zach, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm honored to take a first crack at this Big audacious blue sky question. <laughs> and, uh, fortunately, you know, I've had a, a little bit of opportunity to, to actually think about this. So just before COVID, I gave a keynote in February, and the topic was really around the future of higher education. And I was preparing for that talk and thinking about the title. And I, I thought I came up with this brilliant word to describe the higher ed of the future. And it was communiversity. And of course I Googled it right away. And you know, it wasn't something that I created. But in my defense, it's not widely utilized in higher ed. But I really focus the talk on this notion of communiversities where students strive to be conscientious citizens of a global community, where university leaders embrace their role not just as fiduciaries of their institution, but as community stewards. And the degree programs and the extracurricular opportunities are designed to cultivate the knowledge, the mindset, and the skills for students to thrive in their lives and in their careers. And if this sounds to folks like you know some of the aspects of a liberal education, it absolutely is. I'm a huge <laughs> proponent of that. And I don't want to be uh you know, at the risk of sounding too nerdy and, and paraphrasing Einstein, but he, he was quoted as saying that it's not important for someone to learn facts in college. You can get facts from books. The value of an education in college, and he specifically, I believe, said a liberal arts education in college is training the mind to think something that can't be learned from books. Hmm. And so for me, this community that I would want to build would really embrace The fact that i i see college as the integration phase of the education system where we're preparing young people for the workforce and society so the competencies that we would have at this community university would would be technical and non-technical learning outcomes and skills because i remember one of my first meetings with my advisor in grad school and i was thinking about what classes i should take in my two-year degree program and he said listen rob When you graduate from this program, your employer is going to expect and put you into positions where you are leading. So how are you prepared to navigate change, to embrace conflict, to manage finances and budgets? And that was hugely impactful for me to shape what I wanted to get out of my two years of grad school. So I think a lot about you know, what Brandon Busteed and Kaplan are talking about with credit degrees and producing students that don't just have a diploma, but have an industry-recognized credential and a deep internship opportunity. So that's the workforce readiness side, but then on the sort of more social impact society integration side, we've got to be thinking about bridging people versus dividing people mm-hmm. and creating safe spaces where we can really embrace conflict because conflict is absolutely the real world that there's, that our students are going to go into. And so I think about examples like uh, Florida State University, they had a student-led program called the Power of We. And one of the aspects of this This initiative was these like difficult dialogue programs where they would take on really thorny topics like, you know, the taking down of Confederate statues or the Muslim travel ban, and they would bring academics who had a diverse set of opinions about these issues across the spectrum, and they would provide information, they'd debate these issues, and then it would go into a roundtable dinner discussion where students could actually engage in a dialogue and they could debate. And even if they didn't find common ground in that space, they could leave valuing diversity of thought. So I really see this, this notion of communiversity as not just sort of a utopian ideal. It's, it's clearly possible. We can do this.
0: Communiversity. I love it. I, I think that there is incredible opportunity there. And um, I guess my, yeah, my, the big question is, how does this work? Can this work uh, within sort of the traditional framework? Like, can we, can, can, can your average college and university actually adopt something like this? I know that we're talking in this uh, in this ideal state where we we can do whatever we want here. Yeah, you asked me
1: not to scale. I know, I know, which I like, <laughs> which I love,
0: I love. And I think like what, one of the things that would be really interesting is to sort of explore like what what other uh, what schools, if any, are actually doing things that are a little bit similar to this. There's this there's a school that um, I did a little bit of work with a while ago, and um, that 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 is somewhat akin to what you're talking about. They're a um, a school based in in Boston called Sattler College. They're a uh, very small um uh, uh actually a Christian liberal arts school. Um and they're they're sort of doing something uh it's this big I guess beta test that's a little bit aligned with what you with what you were sharing and so it'd be interesting maybe for for another episode to sort of walk through some examples of schools that are trying at least to to implement some of what you shared but um you know in a nutshell I think that that is is spot on and i think that what folks are looking for is sort of that hybrid between how do you learn real skills that are going to help you be professional in the workspace how do you also though like find opportunity to explore your interests? because college for many people is one of the first times where they can take a class on something that they want to take a class on um and so you know how do you how do you sort of like marry the the sort of like charm around uh, getting to select what you want to learn about with sort of real world skills with sort of, you know, how do you, again, I, I think that we're living in a world that absolutely as, as, as we get more and more polarized, students have to be equipped with how to have a really constructive conversation where debate is celebrated, not feared. And I think mm. like, that there's huge opportunity in higher ed to to be this sort of like space where that can happen and where those skills can and and should be developed because it's one of the only times where um, you will be forced into, in, in many contexts, anyways, forced into an environment and be around people that come from all sorts of backgrounds. Um, and you know, even as you get into the professional workspace, there, there's a little bit of that. But depending on you know where you live and what field you're in, um, you know, unfortunately, there's not tons of diversity everywhere yet. And so I think that it will be it would be really amazing to see great examples of schools that were helping equip the next generations on how to converse with people in a respectful and productive way that are incredibly different from from you or, or at least how you grew up. Mm -hmm. So anyways, your, your model is getting me jazzed. Um, and you know, here I am, uh, uh, you know, blabbing on, on a soapbox at this point, but (laughs) you know, Zach,
1: it's we're there. The bold institutions are out there making big, innovative changes. And unless we do what you're saying and really sort of hold up and highlight the exemplars that are out there, bold is going to continue to feel like risk. It's going to feel like to do something big and different is to go out on a limb and put my institution at risk. But the fact of the matter is it's not a risk. It's not unprecedented, but we're not going to proliferate massive, bold changes without holding up the institution's that are leading us forward in those ways and highlighting the successes that they're having along the way.
0: You could say that again. Um, my last question for you, Rob, and, you know, just thank you so much for your time. This has been, this has been a lot of fun. I have learned a lot. And again, I really do have lots of follow-up questions that we'll have to regroup on at, at a later point. But um, my final question for, for this interview before, before we wrap up here where. we're, Higher ed's living through a moment that is just scary, um, and I, I know that when I talk to enrollment managers and I talk to marcom folks, there's there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of stress right now. People, many folks, still don't know what budget they have, if they're gonna have budget, uh, what they're gonna be able to do. People are working really long hours, um, and it's just you know uh, of all the sectors um, that have been hit hard by by COVID, I think higher ed's been hit especially hard. Um, and it's sort of revealed, as you alluded to earlier, lots of, you know, things that have been happening, um, that, that may have been a little bit more concealed, um, but it's really sort of exposed some of the, the real challenges with the value proposition of higher ed. So my closing question for, for you is what, what are you most excited about? What, what gives you hope? Where do you see sort of the greatest opportunities in higher ed right now? Mm.
1: You know, I I would reframe even Zach and say that you know this point in time hasn't just exposed the challenges. It's also started to expose a lot of really bright light in mm-hmm. higher education. The innovation, the Agility, the adaptability, the speed with which we had to turn on a dime in March, like those aren't typically words that you would use to describe higher education. (laughs) And so, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Well, COVID is the catalyst for innovation, right? Um, So I'm excited about, you know, how we can really embrace this moment. And, you know, I'm excited about how young people are gonna continue to shape us, higher education as an industry and us as a sort of global society for better. And so, you know, I think empowering them, giving them the reins uh, is really important. I think not losing momentum and commitment around the changes that we're trying to put in place once the pandemic or the Black Lives Matter movement starts to subside. And I think, you know, lastly, I see a lot of of work happening with a goal of returning to the way higher education was. But the way things were before the pandemic clearly wasn't a great fit for the students that could be with Mm. all of the challenges that we're facing. So let's really lean into this everything is on the table moment that we have right now to reimagine the purpose and value of college right now is the time to think big and act like the future of higher ed depends on it because it does
0: very very well said i think we can end right there rob that was a that was a a perfect ending to a uh incredibly insightful and interesting conversation um at least for me so if folks want to learn more about the work that you're doing at everfi and are just interested in and maybe even just having a conversation with you what is the best way for them to to reach out to you rob at everfi.com rob easy R-O-B enough at everfi.com fantastic well, sir, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for all the work that you all are doing. Um, it's very, very, very important work, and it's nice to know that there are people that are wrestling with these things, that are um, working to help move our industry forward. So, thanks to you and your team for for all the work that you continue to do. Power to you! I'm sure that there are lots of long nights and um, and 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 challenging times as you sort of uh, attempt to really move an entire sector forward so thank you thank you thank you and i hope that we can uh talk more soon and uh i'm very very honored that you took some time to to be with us on the enrollify podcast
1: hey we're all in it together zach thanks for having me on the show
0: if you are an enrollment marketer working in marketing and communications or enrollment management and would be willing to be interviewed on the podcast or if you have an idea for a topic that you'd like to hear covered on the podcast please reach out directly to me at Zach, Z-A-C-H, at enrollify.org. We sincerely look forward to working with you to make Enrollify the most trusted, go-to digital resource for enrollment marketers out there.